for some snow. Yeah, yeah. Some of y'all were going nuts in the middle of the week. I mean, I was getting texts and everything. Uh, it seems like it's changed a little bit, but that's okay. It's okay. If you really want some snow, I came across a list of ways that you can trigger snow. Some snow day superstitions. These have the same accuracy rate as everything you read on social media this week, so stick with them. Uh, they're good. They're good. All right, here's the first one. Turn your pajamas inside out and wear them to sleep. Undoubtedly, that triggers snow. I, I don't know. You know. Now, look, if you do this in July and it snows, just keep that to yourself, all right? Don't tell anybody that you did that, okay? Second one, place an ice cube in the toilet and flush it. One cube for every inch of snow you want. Some of y'all are going to hit that ice vending machine on the way home, grab two bags, and fill your toilet up on the way home. I know, I know, I know. All right, here's the third one. Sleep with a spoon under your pillow. Now, don't use a slotted spoon. I don't know. Slotted spoon just sounds like you want the snow to melt faster or something. So use a solid spoon and, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe it'll trigger some snow. Who knows? The next one, eat ice cream for dinner. Now, for some of you, we should have snow all the time, you know, because I know this is happening. Uh, if you do end up putting a spoon under your pillow and it's your ice cream spoon, just clean it off first. You don't want all that rocky road underneath your pillowcase, okay? A little wise there. Right, here's the last one. Do a snow dance in your front yard or go to the freezer and open the door and do a snow dance. Well, there you go. Just a snow dance somewhere in the front yard or, or maybe in front of the freezer. And I'm pretty sure that all this dancing is supposed to be with your pajamas warm inside out. You know? So just give it a shot. You know, who knows? We might, we might get some snow uh, before next week. Now, look, most of us, I guess I'm speaking mostly for myself, most of us would love some snow. You know? That just sounds good. Now, we, don't, we don't want a lot of it. You know, uh, I have some friends that live in Illinois outside Peoria, and uh, somebody was posting something about snow, and she's like, you can keep it, you can have it, you know. Some people don't want a lot of snow, but, you know, down here where we don't see it every now and then, it's, it's nice to have a little snow. But what we don't like is what? We don't like the delays that come with snow, right? We don't have time for the delays that come with snow. But here's the truth. At the end of the day, we don't like delays at all right? I mean, we don't like any kind of delays. You know, delay is not something we're looking for in life. I saw something the other day where a guy said he's mad when he gets stuck in traffic on the way to work, but he hates his job. <laughs> so he didn't want to go there to begin with. So why does he get mad by getting stuck in traffic? We all struggle with delay. We all struggle with having to wait. So just a little moment for you here. What did you have to wait on this week? Where were you delayed this week? Where did you find yourself having to wait more than you wanted to wait? And maybe on a side note to that, how did you respond to your delay? How did you respond to waiting? How did you respond with, with having to deal with that a little longer than you wanted to? Or maybe you're still waiting. Maybe you're still delayed. Maybe you're still waiting on, on some person to do something or some situation or circumstance to change, and you're, you're still waiting. So how are you responding to waiting? How are you responding to the delays of life? Well, King David had a serious delay. He was being delayed and delayed and delayed, and he was very, very discouraged. He had been delayed for like maybe more than 10 years. And his discouragement was not just casual discouragement. 
it was like losing his mind discouragement. So what did he do? How did he respond to the delay? How did he respond to having to wait? And what does that have to do with us? If we look at what David did, how would it help us in our response to the delays in our life? Well, let's see if we can find out. Psalm chapter 13, verse 2. King David writes this. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? All the day. David is discouraged, and he's dealing with his discouragement by taking his discouragement to God. He's, he's talking to God about his discouragement. But he's not just talking to God about his discouragement. He's questioning God with his discouragement. How long, O oh Lord? How long is this going to take? Why have you not worked this out already? Why is there this delay? Why am I having to wait? He's questioning the delay. And what was being delayed? Well, from the time frame, it's more than likely that the delay was him being appointed officially as the king. Now, it had already been prophesied. He already had a little ceremony that eventually he was going to be the king, but he was not the king yet. He was having to be delayed. And again, it had been maybe 10 or more years since this appointment happened, and still he is not the king. But this delay is not like he's in the on-deck circle at the palace somewhere just hanging out and waiting. No, David is having to run and hide in caves during the delay. See, the reigning king, Saul, was trying to kill him. He didn't want him to be the king. It's one thing to have to sit in the waiting room at the doctor's office or, or sit in the waiting room at the, the car dealership as your car is being serviced, but it's a whole other thing if there's a guy in the waiting room throwing an axe at you. Okay? It's a little different. You know? So our delay and David's delay are completely different. His delay is serious. He is discouraged with his delay. He is deeply discouraged. We might even say he is depressed over the delay. I saw something that said depression is like wearing tinted glasses. It makes everything dark and bleak and hopeless. That's, that seems to be all we can see. And then it went on to say this. If you're in the waiting room of depression, when you walked in, there was a big, huge sign, and the sign said this. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Ever felt that way? Or felt like that way, that you're, you're being delayed in something, you're waiting on something, you're wanting something to happen, and it's not happening, and you're starting to feel that darkness, that bleakness, that, that hopelessness. Maybe you're feeling that way today. Maybe there's something going on in your life right now that's creating that same experience, that same feeling. Let me just graciously say that it is very, very, very dangerous when you hear someone say that Christians should never be discouraged or depressed. It's dangerous. Now, it doesn't mean we have to be depressed and discouraged all the time, but the Bible is full of more than just hints of depression and discouragement. Depression and discouragement are real. They're not make-believe. We live in a, a fallen, cursed world. And so from time to time, we're going to have moments where we fall under the discouraging weight of that curse. But the challenge is to not worship that discouraging weight. Worship means worth 
ship. It means that there's something or someone that you've decided needs a lot of your attention, needs a lot of your affection, and needs a lot of your adoration. And so what we worship kind of matters because it kind of defines who we are. And so let's just kind of step into this a little bit with our own discouragement. What are you discouraged about right now? Like what's something in your life that right now is discouraging to you? Who is that person? What is that circumstance? What is that situation? What's, what's discouraging you? And now go a little deeper with that. Are you watching that discouragement? Or are you worshiping that discouragement? Is that discouragement getting a whole lot of your attention and your affection and your adoration and your amusement? How are you doing with the headlines? Are you watching the headlines or are you worshiping the headlines? Are they defining who you are? Are they controlling your mind and your heart? Are you watching for change in your spouse, watching for change in your kids, watching for change in your parents, watching for change in, in some other purpose in life? Or are you worshiping the desire for that change to happen? Are you watching for something to happen at work or at school or at church or maybe at your favorite restaurant or your favorite sports team or, or somewhere else in life? Are you waiting for something to happen or are you worshiping the desire for something to happen? Are you watching for test results or stock market results or recruiting results or are you worshiping the desire to get the need of those results? Are we watching or are we worshiping? You might say, well, how will I know if I'm worshiping something like that? Well, the simple math has kind of three parts. Time, energy, and attitude. Generally speaking, the people who are around you most, what would they say takes up the most of your time and your energy and your attitude? And what, what are you about? What, what is the constant conversation? Our discouragement is real, but is your time and your energy and your attitude marked with a constant reflection, a continual reflection about what you are discouraged about? Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about our discouragement to people. We should. We just don't have to talk about it all the time. It's important to have maybe two or three friends, trusted friends that you can unload on, okay? But my terminology that I got from somebody years ago is, you need somebody to throw up on, all right? You need a friend that'll let you just vomit on all your stuff, you know? And that they'll listen and they'll pay attention. And usually, truthfully, it often doesn't need to be like a spouse. Sometimes it can be, you know? But sometimes it's good to, to have a friend outside of the normal closed circles, somebody that you can share those things with. But you don't have to talk about everything that's discouraging you all the time to every person. In fact, give yourself a break. You know, I've told one of my best friends, I was like, you know what I love about our friendship? We talk about nothing. Man, I just love it. I said, every conversation I'm in most days is serious. And I said, we just talk about nothing. You know, when we talk, we don't, we don't talk about you know, religion or politics or pandemics or, or trying to get everything back the way that it used to be. Which, by the way, that has never happened in the history of the world, in case that's confusing. It's never happened in the history of the world that anything has ever gone back to the way that it used to be. From the Garden of Eden to right now, as you hear my voice, to 735 years from now, nothing will ever be like it used to be. It's impossible. One day Jesus was talking to 
a crowd of people and they were questioning him about what it meant to follow him. And this is what Jesus said to them. Luke chapter 9, verse 62. Jesus said, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In ancient times, what a farmer would do is he'd put his hands on the plow and then when he made the turn, he had to look on the horizon and find a spot. And he had to zero in on that spot. He had to look at that spot to make sure that the next row would be straight. That was the only way he could have a straight row. He couldn't turn around because then the row would be crooked. If we were to put this in modern terminology, I'm pretty sure when I took my driving test, if I had been looking out the back window the whole time, I probably would have failed. You know, I probably wouldn't have made it. Now, Jesus' language is simple. It's gracious. Eyes forward. Eyes forward. Look ahead, look ahead, look ahead. Look at the next step and the next step and the next step. You know, when we get discouraged, here's what happens. We start making stipulations with God. We don't even realize we do it, but we do it. We start saying, well, God, I will obey anything you ask me. I will go anywhere you call as long as I can stay in my hometown. God, I'll do anything that you want me to do as long as I can keep all of my hobbies. God, I will obey you and follow you just as soon as everything opens back up the way I want it to open back up. See, the danger of discouragement is we start making stipulations. We make stipulations to God about following him based on physical things in our life instead of focusing on him. And Jesus says with absolutely no confusion, eyes forward, eyes forward, eyes forward. Can I just tell you maybe one of the most important things that all of us need to hear on February 7th, 2021 is this. Our eyes need to be forward. We do not need to be in conversations about how to get things back. That is not the call of the gospel. It's not the command of Jesus. It's not where we're supposed to be focused. And can I say, praise God our founding fathers had their eyes forward. Praise God the men and women fighting for our country in World War II kept their eyes forward. They were never looking back, never turning around. Eyes forward, eyes forward, eyes forward. This is our time. This is our day. We have the thrill, the privilege, the honor to keep building the future, not to be mired down in the discouragement about what we don't have and what we wish were different. What do we have? Christian, what do you have? Do you have saving faith in Jesus Christ? Then you have everything that you need right now and forever. So we build from there and we listen to Jesus and we plow forward. We keep our eyes forward. There is no greater place for your mind and your heart right now than the eyes of Jesus. Forward, forward, forward. Praise God that there is something for us to look forward to. He's a good guy. David was discouraged. He was discouraged. Where was David's heart and mind? He was frustrated. Where's your heart and mind today? Are, are you discouraged? Is, is the throne of your heart and mind right now taken up with Jesus or taken up with your discouragement? What, what, what has the, the greatest influence and authority? in your heart and mind right now. David, he, he was struggling with throne here in his life. Listen again to what he said at the very beginning. How long shall I take counsel in my soul? Where was he getting his counsel from? 
Where was, where was David getting advice for his discouragement? Well, in the words of philosopher M. Alberto Kaiserman, feelings, nothing more than feelings. Feelings, whoa. Sorry, I just wanted to do the whoa, whoa part. Yeah, feelings. David, his feelings were defining what was happening in his life. His feelings were controlling his mind. Look, that doesn't mean our feelings are not real. They are very, very, very real. And listen, you need to listen to your feelings, okay? Your feelings are important. Your feelings are, are part of how God has designed us, but your feelings have been designed to point you in the direction of reality. Your feelings are designed to help you see reality. And the greatest and the most ultimate reality in the universe is God. God is the ultimate reality. One theologian put it this way, we are more human becomings than we are human beings. See, we're becoming something new. We change every single day. Look, I promise I will have less hair this time tomorrow. You know, it's just what's happening in my life. Every single one of us will not be the same this time tomorrow as we are today. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, something will happen in all of our lives, no matter how old we are, no matter where we live, we will not be the same person this time tomorrow that we are today. We are becoming something different, but God is not becoming anything. He is a being. He is the being. He has always been. He was, and He is, and He is to come. He is the perfect being. God does not exist in the same sense that we exist. He doesn't exist in the same sense that your house exists or your car exists. He doesn't exist in the same sense that a a bowl of lobster mac and cheese exists. He exists differently. His existence is in his being. He has always been. And because that is his character, because that's his nature, that makes him automatically, by definition, the greatest and ultimate reality in the universe. And our feelings are designed to direct us to the greatest reality. Our feelings are designed to help us engage with the reality of God. And here's why. Because our feelings are not always reality. We we need that reality. We need the reality of God for our feelings. About 15, 16 months ago, my sister-in-law was here from Arkansas visiting with us when she comes, we just have to entertain her all the time. She's so demanding. No, I'm kidding. My sister-in-law is great. Always have a great time with her. And so we went to Charleston for the day and, and we went to a restaurant called the Glass Onion. And so, uh, you know, when I went in, I ordered uh, the buttermilk fried quail plate with double smashed potatoes. And, you know, we all went and sat down and I'm pretty stoked about my meal. This is going to be great. But you know, the longer I sat there, I just, I kept seeing those words, you know, on the menu of the day, you know, that there was a special it was a fried oyster po' boy sandwich. And I was like, man, that would really be good too. So I went back up and ordered that. And so I ended up with two entrees. You know, I got the uh, po' boy sandwich with grits, and then I had my quail with double, mash, double smashed potatoes. And I ate all of it, and I think I ate some of Karen's food too. Um, so, you know, I, it was good. Now, let me just say that generally speaking these days, I don't eat hardly ever eat fried food, and I don't usually eat two entrees. I can, and I can put it away without too much trouble, but I try not to. But on that day, on that particular day, after we'd had lunch, we all piled in the car, drove them downtown to Charleston, 
drop them all off so they could shop and walk around. I went and found a parking place, and probably within three seconds, I was in the middle of a power nap. I mean, like fast. Like I had had way too much to eat. Now, here's the thing. My feelings were telling me, man, get that po' boy. That'd be good, you know. But the quail and the smashed potatoes, they were my reality. You know, they, they were really what I needed. I, I didn't need anything else. Now, that may sound like a, a silly illustration, but, but there's some truth surrounding it. Your feelings will convince you that you need to buy that, or you need to watch this, or you need to go to that place. Your feelings will tell you that you need tons of stuff, but your heart needs reality. Your heart needs reality. David's feelings of discouragement, they were real. They were weighing him down, but his heart needed some reality. So what did he do? Well, he took his feelings to God, the greatest reality in the universe. He took his questions to God, the greatest reality in the universe. David knew what he was doing. See, by turning to God, it changed everything happening in his life. His feelings were real. His discouragement was real, but he didn't let them play in the yard by themselves. No, by turning to God, instead of turning to social media, whatever it was of the day, instead of turning to the TV news or talk radio or, or the gossiping, complaining corner at the breakfast joint, instead of doing all of that, David turned to God. And in turning to God, what he was doing was sending his feelings on a date. He was sending his feelings on a date. With who? With his faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. True saving faith in Jesus Christ is always looking at the certificate of ownership. What does that mean? What kind of certificate of ownership does a believer have? What it means is this, is that when you're discouraged, when you're down, when you're frustrated, when you're trying to figure out what's going on, if you're a believer, the cross of Jesus Christ is always there. It never disappears. It's always there, and it's always reminding you, you are not believing in a religion. You are not believing in a denomination. You are not believing in a philosophy. You are not believing in a, in a hobby that, that helps you get through life. You are believing in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. Our discouragement is real. When our feelings and our discouragement are causing everything in our vision to look dark and bleak and hopeless, that's when we turn to the cross because the cross reminds us of the certificate of ownership that says this, I'm his and he is mine. I'm in a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ and nothing can change that. Nothing that happens today, nothing that happens tomorrow, nothing that happens 10 years from now, nothing that happens 735 years from now can change my relationship with God. I am his and he is mine. That truth changes every moment. David knows that. He gets it. He's like, yeah, I'm discouraged. I'm frustrated. He's losing his mind a little bit. And so he sends his feelings on a date with his faith. Ed Welch says this, Faith is a way of seeing or sensing the invisible realities that stand behind the visible. Just stop real quick. 
Everything that we're seeing right now is visible. 2020 was visible. 2021 will be visible. But faith is always seeing the invisible realities behind the visible. He goes on. Depression, when it is being yanked in death's direction, sees misery. That's what a lot of people are seeing. There's a lot of professing Christians are seeing right now. They're looking at the visible. They're looking at the events of the world. They're listening to the news, and they're saying, misery, misery, misery. That's all that exists. Ed Welch goes on. However, depression, when coupled with faith, sees much more. See, the date, the date changes things. Are you feeling yanked today? Are you feeling yanked in the direction of misery? You know, misery loves company. Maybe you're like, hey man, there's plenty of vacancy in my heart for me and misery. I'm, I'm all about it. Let's, let's do this. You're so angry. You're so frustrated. You're, you're so afraid. Whatever it is that you are, you just can't see anything but misery. It's, it's dark. It's bleak. It's hopeless. But faith changes it. So if that's how you feel, send your feelings on a date with faith. Hook them up. Let them be together. Help your faith begin to change what you see. Because when your discouragement, when your misery, when your frustration and your fear and your anger, when it goes on a date with your faith, you will be able to see more. You'll be able to see better. And David, he needs that date like right now. Look what he says, continuing in verse 2. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? What David's doing here is what's called lamenting. It means that he's got serious issues. He's got discouragement. He's got misery. He's got problems. But he is taking all of that stuff to God in prayer. He is pleading with God to do something. Listen, if you have not already, learn to lament. Learn to take your feelings to God. Learn to take your questions to God. It doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to have you know, big fancy language. Just learn to take those things to God. Let your relationship with God be the kind of relationship that you take and you take and you take and you take. You want him to hear your concerns. You want him to hear your misery. You want him to hear your discouragement. That's what David's doing. David's lamenting. And then his lamenting takes an interesting turn in the direction of his enemy. Now, who's his enemy? Well... He might have been talking about King Saul. He might have been talking about Saul's soldiers. He might have been talking about some health problem he was in the middle of. He might have been talking about our greatest enemy, the father of lies, the evil one, Satan, the devil. There's a lot of enemies that we have in life. But the way we respond to all of those enemies is exactly the same. We take our enemy feelings and we send them on a date with our faith. And we keep doing that, and we keep doing that, and we keep doing that. Now, what does that look like in real life? Well, my hope and my intention is that every week I will share something with you from Mark Rogoff. I highly recommend his book, uh, Deep Clouds, I'm sorry, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It's a book on lamenting. It's a book that he had to learn about it. It wasn't just like a seminary class, and he wrote a book. Mark and his wife, Sarah, know the depth 
of what it means to be discouraged. Just a few days before their daughter Sylvia was supposed to be born, there was no heartbeat. The next day, after nine months of pregnancy, Sarah spent hours in labor. Eventually, Mark was holding Sylvia, and this is how he described that moment. She was beautiful, but not alive. Just like David, Mark and Sarah, sadly, they've learned how to lament. They, they get it. They've learned what it means to take the depression and the fear and the anger and the discouragement, all some of the same things that some of us experience. They've learned what it means to take those things to God. And they have to do it over and over and over again. There's no magic pill, but there is a holy God who loves you, who cares for you, and they've learned that. Two years later, Mark and Sarah were on their way to the doctor again. She was farther along after multiple miscarriages since Sylvia's death. And so the doctor wanted to do an ultrasound, and, and that day in the ultrasound, it was discovered that she had a blighted ovum. It means there was a false pregnancy. It wasn't, it wasn't there. Mark and Sarah got out to the car, and, and they prayed, and this is what Sarah prayed. God, I know you're not mean, but it feels like you are today. Been there? Had that moment? One of the reasons I encourage you to read this whole book is to hear the whole story, but what I really appreciate about Mark is at the end of chapter 2, he said, maybe that's where you need to start. Maybe this is a moment in your life where you just need to say, God, I know you aren't whatever. Whatever's happening with you. God, I know you're not mean. I know you're not forgetting me. I know you're not ignoring me. God, I know you're not dead. Whatever it may be, but it sure feels like you are today. Maybe that's a starting point. And look, that's okay. You can pray that. It's fine. But after you pray that, as quick as you can, send your feelings on a date with your faith to the cross. Just try, try to get to the cross as, as quickly as possible. Because what the cross does is it reminds us of those words from Luther. Listen to him again. Though this world, the United States of America, North America, Europe, Africa, South America, though this world with devils filled, it's not a suggestion, a reality, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Dear Christian, God has planned. He has purposed. He has made the way for you to win. His design, his desire. His delight is your triumph. And how are we triumphant? We are triumphant through Jesus, through the power of the cross. Saving faith in Jesus Christ is your victory. Your faith 
is your victory. And no one and nothing can take your victory away from you. And this victory, your faith, it's not a snow day superstition. Your feelings are not your victory. Your faith is your victory. And it's no superstition because Jesus purchased your faith with his own precious blood. And he says to us today, take your victory and eyes forward. Eyes forward.